Hebrews 12, once again, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us also run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And Paul, over in Acts twenty twenty four, he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my uh, course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so once again, we, we have our, our hearts, I pray and hope, uh, oriented to this, over, uh, this overall goal that we have um, in this class to, to set ourselves up well to run the race set before us, to, to, to live in the ministry that God has given to us um, to the end. We live in a day where it seems like people, this is especially true of Christian ministers, but I think just people in general in our culture seem to be flaming out left and right. We're, we're burning out. So we don't want to do that. Remember we've said defining burnout. We've defined it as the failure to fulfill our God-given obligations, both because of circumstance, things that we we can't really help. There are things, external circumstances in our lives that we, we can't do anything about. They're just there because of circumstance and because of choice. There are things, however, that, that we can choose. And sometimes there's an overlap in, in those things. But um, there are choices that we make, circumstances that befall us, that um, when we're, we're not thinking rightly, and have a, a plan, really, then we tend to burn out, which we said, again, the failure to fulfill these God-given obligations because of circumstance and choice, and this failure is attended by increasingly negative consequences in our relationships with God, others, and ourselves. And so it's fairly broad definition, admittedly not a perfect one. We spent a lot of time at the beginning of the class trying to shape and form it, but I think generally it is, it's helpful because even if you might define burnout a little differently, I think we can all agree we want to avoid that, <laughs> um, the thing we just described. Um, and so we talked about burnout. We set up a definition. Then we spent some time uh, in October thinking particularly about the the dangers that face us in, a, in the technological world that we live in, the digital landscape before us presents us some unique challenges that, uh, that perhaps others in, in bygone eras have not experienced or not in the same way. There is a speed, a, a rapidity to life that I think people... Um, that, that it's just there's something something unique about it. Um, and so we spent some time looking at those dangers, and then the last several weeks we've been trying to develop a positive theology of of the body. Because one of the things that I've argued in this class, right, is that um, 
one of the fundamental problems that we face in our present day is a separation of body and soul, right? In which really that isn't new at all. That, that goes back certainly to the times of the New Testament and I think we could argue even before that is that one of the, the lies and schemes of the devil is to convince us that we are, uh, that one of those things doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't really matter which one, so long as you disparage one, you know, you elevate one at the expense of the other. And so when we live in a world where the physical sort of was all that mattered for a while, and now it's become that nothing in the physical matters, that the physical is malleable and can and should be shaped according to what we think and how we feel. And so, um, also, in Christian circles, I think, trying to push against those things we've we've sort of bought into this yeah we're we are souls and we have bodies right that's sort of language we would disagree perhaps i'm not we wouldn't with the statement i am my body many christians would take that and say no i don't that's not true i am my soul i am a soul and i have a body but the reality is that we are both body and soul and so we've been trying to build a positive theology of the body over the last few weeks we looked at the importance of sleep, um, so hopefully you've been taking, you know, this week, hopefully you took some opportunities and put that into practice and, and took a, a good nap after Thanksgiving lunch, uh, perhaps. Um, talked about sleep, we've talked about um, exercise, we've talked about hobbies and work and all of these different things, and so today I want to talk about food and just the idea of fuel. So, sort of a, hopefully a fitting topic after the week that we've just had. Um, the, the body is good, created by God for His service, but we also don't own our bodies. Right? We saw that from 1 Corinthians 6, that you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. I don't own my body. You don't own your body. God does. And therefore, He has the right to tell us what to do with them. And so far, that we've seen that looks like make sure you're striving to get adequate sleep, that you work hard and work smart, that you play, right? All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. That we exercise. Um, when we looked at 1 Corinthians 6, we talked also about the, the sexual ethic of the Christian life, that we are to give our bodies only to another person in the context of marriage. And so today we want to look at the body and food. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. What's that say? Who knows? Somebody. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And so, um, usually, I think, often when we hear this verse quoted, we, we, it tends to immediately, it's applied to all things. Like we always focus on the, the whatever you do part of it, right? Um, but how does he begin? Whatever, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So what is, what is this verse, briefly, we won't spend a ton of time here, but 
What does that tell you about your relationship with food? Yeah, 1 Corinthians uh, 8 through 10, uh, much of it is, refers to the, these practices of the, the pagans around them would sacrifice you know, to their, their deities, their gods, and they would, you know, it was meat sacrificed to an idol, it was offered up to this, this, this false deity, and then you know, afterward, what do you do with the meat? Um, is, is it something that a Christian could, could partake of in, in eating? And so he's very much focused on a very on a very specific, um, you know, uh, application of food in terms of um, uh, what, what, is, what is food. If you, eat, if you eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, is that going to defile you in some way? Paul's answer is no. Um, but if that's going to bother and grieve your conscience, then, then you shouldn't eat. Um, but, but feel free. And so, on the one hand, there, there is a great freedom that we have when it comes to, to our diets and our, our food. But one of the things that I, I think that, is, that was plaguing the church at Corinth there was perhaps you know, this, this overemphasis on, on food, that they had over-spiritualized it in a sense that it was by the very nature of eating this food, even if it had been you know, thought wrongly of by someone else, then it would somehow defile them. And so, um, what's the broad principle in terms of our, what we eat from a verse like 1 Corinthians 10? Use food to do what? To glorify God, Right? At, at the bottom, at the base of what we do, what we eat, what we do with our food, it should be most significantly to glorify God. Now, that sounds perhaps like an overly spiritualized um, approach to food. But if, if all I eat is whatever, Oreos and uh, ice cream or something like that... Um, if that's all I eat, that's probably not going to be a very glorifying thing to the Lord because that's going to have a quite destructive effect on my body, right? Um, now, I'll say this. I think in comparison to the topics we've covered so far, this food is probably... And I don't necessarily mean for us in this room, though perhaps, but I think generally it, it may be the most controversial subject that we'll consider in this theology of, of the body, right? We, we might disagree over exactly how much sleep we need, but beyond that, what is there really to disagree about? I mean, we know we need sleep, and we pretty much sleep when we're tired, and and we're we're good with that 
I think most people still, you know, oh, eight, eight hours, that sounds good. Some of us might say, no, I'll take 10 or 11, but not a ton of disagreement. We know that we need exercise, but we might not do it, but we're not generally thinking, oh, well, you know, this is bad, though exactly what form, perhaps, we might disagree with. Christians certainly are going to admit we shouldn't engage in sexual morality. We get that, but, but food... While we do agree that we should eat, generally, Im- immediately the questions begin. How much should we eat? How often should you eat? What should you eat? Should you count calories? Should you count macros? Is the food pyramid something to live by, or is it killing all of us? Should you eat vegetables only? Should you eat meat only? Can you eat bread? Right? Or can you not? Should you skip breakfast? Or should you skip dinner? Or, or maybe you should just skip lunch, one at the beginning and one at the end. If you do eat meat, can you eat red meat? Or should you limit yourself to chicken? Fish meat is practically a vegetable, so what do you do with that? What about the things that we drink? Is, is milk okay? Does it matter if it's skim milk or 2% or whole? What about soda, coffee, or alcohol? Is processed food really that bad for us? Is it causing the obesity and cancer epidemic? Or have people always been this sick and this unhealthy? And once again, I think... The bigger question is, what effect is all of this having on our children? On and on the questions could go, and I don't think, we certainly don't have time and, or the expertise to try to answer most of those questions, um, but I hope we can offer a few principles about food this morning that will help us find a balance in the way that each of us answers those questions for ourselves and in the ways that we we encourage others to do so as well. So think about this. In the garden, God gave us food. Paul says that food, in 1 Timothy 4, he said food is to be received with thanksgiving. But then in 1 Corinthians 6, he says that Including food, he says, I will not be dominated by anything. In Philippians 3, he warns of those whose God is their belly. So there's this sort of swirling mix of principles that we can draw out of Scripture regarding the food that we eat. That food from the beginning was a good thing, and yet food was the the immediate item under consideration that brought about what? The entire fall of mankind into sin. Food has, has been, for me, a particular, it's just been a struggle for me in my life. I find food is often a place of refuge and retreat for me. I eat when I'm bored and I eat when I'm stressed. It's, uh, it's um, double jeopardy, if you will. 
I'm not sure I know what double jeopardy means, but it's a bad combination, right? I eat to bring excitement to a dull situation, and I eat to distract myself from, from the stress of a painful moment. I remember when I was, when I was teaching, I was a school teacher before I started, even, this was before I was even working part-time here at the church, I would get home around 3.30 in the afternoon. We didn't have any kids yet. Jesse was, I don't know what you were doing. I was trying to think about where you would have been. Maybe home, maybe not, somewhere. And um, working somewhere, I'm sure. And so what would I do is I would, I would eat. I'd get home, right? I had lunch around 11.30 or 12 o'clock, and it's now 3.30. Several hours have gone by, and the, the ham sandwich was, you know, had worn off. But... I, you know, and I just meander, graze in the kitchen. You know, it hadn't been a few hours since lunch. I still had a few hours till dinner. So I ate. Um, and it was, it was around this time. It was probably the summer of 2014, summer of 2015, that I, I had stepped on the scale and I had a heart attack just about. And I just realized the direction that my life was, was heading we were struggling to, to have conceive a baby. We wanted children, and that was not, not happening. Um, you know, just languishing under the, the literal weight of my, my food choices. Um, so Jesse had just suggested that we change some things up diet-wise and see how that goes. And so we did, and in about a month I had lost 15 pounds, and Silas was born the following spring. And, and ever since, like, I've just been on this journey trying to manage my diet and I'll be honest it's it's tough we we live in a world that that does not want us to eat healthy it's challenging but our our food doesn't just affect our our waistline it doesn't just affect the scale it affects our mood as well Right? Your body's blood sugar level has a tremendous impact on your mood. We've talked about this. You know, if you're diabetic, you know that for sure. And if you're not, you still probably know that. But we, we've talked about this, right? If you've been hungry for a while, don't you find yourself a bit more prone to be fearful or angry or anxious or, or some other negative emotion that you, you might not normally experience on a, a sated appetite? Likewise, if you've gorged yourself on junk food, or even if it's Thanksgiving dinner, how do you feel afterward? Probably not great. Food affects our mood and therefore our relationships. Going back to the, you know, this is just my counseling hour with you, I guess. My, my marriage uh, was struggling under the, at least in my mind, under the weight of those things many years ago. I'd, I'd have my mid-afternoon snack and then have a double helping at dinner. And then how, what would I do after dinner? I'd lay around and I'd feel completely useless, feel terrible, and would do nothing. Some, you know, Jesse would ask, hey, can you, you know, clean up or go for a walk? And I might do those things, but I'd do them kind of begrudgingly, be a bit of a jerk about it. 
And so the food that we eat has a tremendous impact on how we feel, which has uh, at least an impact. It doesn't cause me to be a jerk, but it tempts me, perhaps, to be rude. Um, I don't really know where to insert this, this thought, um, but I think it's a really important point to make about food. Um, Nick Batsig, um, some of you may know, um, friend of ours, he, he wrote a blog post many years ago on his website, Feeding on Christ, and, um, and it's, the post is called A Biblical Theology of Food and Drink, and I want to quote a, a portion of it here for you. He says, while food and drink do not form the sum and substance of the kingdom of God, the mission of God was nevertheless a mission built around table fellowship. This was true of those in the kingdom in the days of Jesus. It was true of the believers in the kingdom of God in the first century, and it ought to be true of our fellowships today. Believers gathered together around a meal presents the prelude to the eschatological feasting that we see in the kingdom of God. It is for this reason that we ought to be inviting unbelievers to missional meals. When the world sees us feasting with one another on physical food while we feast on the rich banquet of God's word and sacraments, they ought to see something of our hope in the eschatological feast and glory and long to come to the one who invites them to his redemptive supper. Jesus himself told his disciples at the Last Supper, which was incidentally his first supper with them, that he would not eat and drink with them until he did so anew in the eschatological kingdom. So food presents us many challenges, but it also presents us many, many opportunities. It's not just a personal thing that affects your mood and your health and your marriage. It is an important element in the Christian life. From the beginning, we've said we've had food. Right, think about this. So last week, at the end, I'm, I was talking about reading, right? What, how helpful it can be to just read a little bit more. And I said, if God is pleased to have revealed Himself to us by the written Word, that, that says something about the importance we should place on the written Word. Right? How about this? If God sanctifies food in giving us the Lord's Supper, shouldn't we think quite importantly about food? It's not a, it's not a bad thing to be avoided. Tris? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so God has done this, therefore we ought to appreciate what that says to us about food and about the physical. That, that each week we're given this gracious reminder of God that not only, right, physically or emotionally, uh, spiritually we have the, the Word proclaimed and that has physical elements to it. You have to hear it and see me flailing about um, while I'm preaching, there's, there's, there's a physical element to it, but then that physical, the physical nature of the Christian life is, is brought to bear even more when in the supper we're given something to hold in our hands, to smell, to taste, right? And we, we eat and we 
drink, and we are reminded each week that food is a good thing that God has given to us, and we live in a physical and embodied world. It is inescapable. And so the food that we eat, you know, Jonathan Edwards was, was um, notorious is probably the wrong word, but very well known for having a very scrup- he kept a scrupulous journal of all things, but one of the things was about his, his diet. He would, he would eat, and then he would take notes about how, what kind of effect the food had on him. And, you know, should every single person ever keep that, the exact type of level of, of journal that, that he did about food? Maybe, maybe not, but I think it's a good exercise, it's a good practice that, you know, if you've ever done that, take a week or, or two weeks or whatever and just write down, here's what I had for breakfast, here's what I had for lunch, here's what I had for dinner, and here were the general sort of side effects of, of those, those meals. Perhaps there are things that would be better not to eat, things to eat, right? Um, I want to shift gears here a little bit. So this isn't really food, but I think it is related as we think about right, fueling, fueling our bodies for, for living in this embodied world. And I want to talk about medication. Um, again, not really food, but we do ingest them. So I think they're good to mention here. Uh, David Murray in the book that you know, we referenced many times, Reset, that sort of helped form the, the outline of this class. He offers some helpful principles here, and we're just kind of run through them quickly about the use of medication in our lives, and especially in like the biblical counseling world. It's constant you know, conversations being had about about medications, particularly like psychotropic medications. Not, we're not necessarily talking about Tylenol, so I, I think that would uh, still apply here in all this. But um, other things that you might take for emotional support and help and all that. So here are some principles that he gives. The first one is don't rush to medications. Right? We, we live in an overly medicated society, and he says there might be simpler fixes to the problems that we face and just rushing the medications. But then second, he says, but don't rule them out. Don't just have an a priori bent against taking medications and say never under any circumstances will I ever take medication no matter what. No matter how helpful it might be or proved to be, I'm not going to do it. So don't rush to them. Don't rule them out. And then he says, Sir, but also don't, don't wait too long. Don't when you, when you have problems, right? And this, this isn't just with medication, but just with getting help with whatever the problem might be. So I think as Americans, maybe it's the kind of the self-will, the autonomy of I'm going to fix my own problem kind of mindset that tends to, to just say asking for help is just the most insane thing that a person could do until they're literally, you know, you've got one finger left on the ledge before you're about to fall. And so we, we don't want to wait too long in terms of asking for help, you know, going to counseling, seeing a doctor, whatever. We don't want to wait too long, but whether we wait long or, or not, we shouldn't, fourthly, expect rapid results. Right? These things don't just change overnight, usually. Fifthly, we don't want to rely on medication alone. Right? It's not just take these two pills and call me in the morning 
It's, well, what are the other things that I can be doing to, to make my life a bit more manageable, to live more faithfully? Six, he says, don't dwell on the side effects, right? If something's genuinely, genuinely going to help you, there may also be negative side effects, and he says sometimes you just have to deal with those. It's often not helpful to, to dwell on them. It's going to keep you from getting actual help. When you're talking to a doctor, counselor, whatever, he says, don't hold anything back. Tell everything. Don't minimize what you're experiencing. Eight, he says, don't be obsessed about getting off medications. Nine, don't come off of them too rapidly. Ten, don't be ashamed of them. And eleven, don't tell everyone. So when we think about our, our bodies, right? We live in a fallen world. We live in a sin-sick world. We live w- with pain. Some days it's worse than others. So, you know, sometimes it's because of it's genetic. Sometimes it's because of things that happened to us or that we did when we were younger that were sort of paying the consequences for now, whether it was a good or a bad thing that we did. (laughs) But we can live in the present, and we can ask ourselves, what can I do so that I am maximizing my usefulness for the kingdom of God? And I I just, I know it's, it's probably overly simplistic, but... What if we went into whatever we did, right? Whatever, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, a couple of things. First, it's what does it mean for me in this moment that God is my God, food is not my God, sleep is not my God, my body is not my God, my spouse, my children, my job, my Instagram followers, those things are not my God, God is my God. How do I approach lunch with God as my God? Well, I approach it to saying that my ultimate, whatever satisfaction I get out of this is a mere pointer. And now it is a pointer, and it's real, but it's, it's just that. It isn't ultimate. I can't fix and solve my woes. I can't redeem the world with the meal in front of me. But this meal can point me to... That's why Paul says, receive it with thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving, you have to look up. right term yeah 
Yep. For sure. Yeah, that's great. It makes so three quick things so about that. So Paul in Philippians four says, I know how to abound and I know how to be brought low. Right? I learned the the secret to this mystery of contentment, which is Christ, right? In, um, by whom I can do all things. So I can abound and I can be brought low. Um, uh, in um, The Things of Earth, a book, I, I taught a Sunday school class on this years, like six years ago maybe. Joe Rigney, he writes in this book, um, two tests that we should give ourselves to help us determine, are we falling into some type of licentiousness when it comes to the things of earth, to the good things that we have, that God's given to us, be it roller coasters, be it food. He says, to test one, well really it just has to do with the word loss, but it's voluntary loss and involuntary loss, right? What happens with involuntary loss, right? When you lose something that you love, how do you respond, right? Now, responding with grief, responding with sorrow, uh, hopefully by this point in Lamentations, you know, we, we get that it's appropriate to grieve the things that we've lost. But does it upend us? Does it bring us to a ju- true and genuine breaking point because I didn't, right, I don't have the thing that I, that I want? Am I willing to sin because I don't get what I want? So, involunt- but if not, right, if I can involuntarily lose things and, like Job, at some level, still say, God gave, God took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Not in a trite way, not in a this doesn't hurt kind of way, because don't forget, what did he do with that? He falls, he tears his clothes, falls down, and, and weeps, and doesn't talk for at least a solid week, right? There's also involuntary, or voluntary loss. So you have vol- involuntary loss, then there's voluntary loss. Which is what? Do you give stuff away? Right? Do you give away your best stuff? Not all of it, right? This isn't, don't give yourself into poverty, but are you a generous person with what you have? Do you give away things that you might even think at times are needful? Certainly things that, that are you know, luxuries, right? Do you give away? Do you invite, right? Jesus says, invite people over to dinner who can't pay you back. 
You give things away, and which brings me to the third thing. So last night we were listening in the car to um, Little Women, and in like the second chapter, it's like Christmas Day, and um, and the girls are all excited about breakfast and all of this. And uh, is it their mom? I guess I'm, I'm not not. I've never read it before, and so I'm listening to it, and it's, yeah, I know. And so I'm, we're trying now, I'm listening with the boys, and so I guess their mom comes in, and she goes, oh, hey, while I was out, I ran across this lady with uh, six kids, of an infant, they have absolutely nothing. What do you guys say about taking breakfast over to them? I've got bread and milk that we'll have. And it's, she, uh, she says, a minute goes by, but no more than a minute. And one of the girls is like, well, what are we doing waiting? Let's, and they take all the food, and they run it over there, and they, they, they have this sort of grand old time, and they're walking back home. She says, in that whole town, there were not four people happier than those girls who gave away their breakfast on Christmas morning in exchange for bread and milk. And so, Rigney, the point he makes, he says, look, when you're sitting down to a fantastic feast, he says, the legalist says, you should be praying with every single bite, right? You shouldn't take a bite of food without praying, like, oh, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. That makes for a dull dinner. He says, give thanks, give hearty, hearty thanks before, and then eat, and enjoy it, and laugh, and love, and then when you're done, give thanks. And if you happen to be prompted to give thanks in the middle of it, do it. But receive with thanksgiving what God has given. Enjoy it as much as you can, and then occasionally give it away. And if you happen to lose it, because someone steals it, or moths eat it, or rust corrodes it, whatever rust does. Say with Job, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, there's more that we could say. Probably more we should say. Um, so let's keep talking, keep thinking, keep praying about the physical embodied world that we live in and the gifts that God has given to us. These, these, these bodies that we need to care for. And use, maximize usefulness in God's kingdom. How does this meal make me not a better Christian, but a more useful one for God, right? Sometimes the most useful thing you can do, as D.A. Carson said a couple weeks ago, we saw, was, is to take a nap. So perhaps sometimes you eat and then you sleep. But sometimes you need to eat and get to work.